Good afternoon and welcome to Trinity Word Ministry Bible study on Isaiah. As you know, we have started doing this on Monday afternoons, but I will go ahead and tell you that next Monday that we will not be doing this. I have someplace else I have to be. But uh, welcome. I hope you learned something. And if you do, hit me up on uh, comments or send me an email letting me know what you've learned or if you have a question that you'd like to ask or if you have a prayer request. We take those as well. So we welcome you to our home and to Isaiah Bible study. Before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity once again to come into your house to worship, to praise, and to honor your name. We ask, Lord, that you'll anoint my lips as I endeavor to bring forth the message that you'd wish me to have, Lord. Anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive. And we ask this in Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. As you know, last week we got started on Isaiah chapter 1. We made it all the way to the whopping verse of 4. So we will begin with Isaiah chapter 1, verse 5 tonight. And if you, uh, again, if you have any questions, please just let me know. Verse 5. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. Isaiah is asking the people of Israel of Judah why they should continue in their disobedience. It is because of their disobedience that they are to soon to be punished. In Deuteronomy, God warned them that if they were disobedient, that punishment would ensue. Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 25. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt... Not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come unto thee and overtake thee. Cursed shall thou be in the city, and cursed shall thou be in the field. Cursed shall thou be the basket and thy store. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land. The increase of thine kind and flocks of thy sheep. Cursed shall thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shall thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke, in all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed, and until thou perish quickly because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby thou hast forsaken me. The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee, until he has consumed thee from off the land. Whither thou goest to possess it, the Lord shall smite thee with a consumption, and with a fever, and with an inflammation, and with an extreme burning, and with a sword, and with blasting, and with mildew. And they shall pursue thee until thy thou perish. And thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. The Lord shall make the rain of the land powder and dust, from heaven shall it come down unto thee, until thou be destroyed. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them, and flee seven ways before them, and shalt be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. Sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? But God has told them over and over again that if they would repent, He would help them. But if they continue in their disobedience, then it's on them. 
you know, if you tell your child that the stove is hot and your child touches the stove, whose fault is it? Is it your fault for having the stove in the house? You have to have a stove. You have to have a stove to cook or to heat. So is it your fault that your child got burned? Yes, there are things that we can do. We can block it off and we can keep the child from getting close to the stove. But yet, there are times when you're going to have to have access to your own stove. Your child will come up and they will get burned. If you told them and warned them over and over again that the stove is hot, it's on them. Now that sounds harsh and that sounds cruel, but I am the father of two, the grandfather of eight. And as much as I want to protect my children, as much as I want to protect my grandchildren, there are times when I just can't do it. I can warn them, and I can tell them not to do something, but it's on them if they go and do it. Just as it was on me when I was a child, and my father or my mother would, would tell me not to do something, and I'd go ahead and do it. It's on me. Children of Israel have been told over and over again that their disobedience was going to get them in trouble. And yet they still disobeyed. It is not God's fault for the problems of Israel. It's not God's fault for the problem of Judah. It is the people's fault. And he's telling them real quick, Isaiah is telling them, why don't you quit disobeying? If you'll quit disobeying, you'll quit being beaten. Now, God's not beating them, but he is allowing the enemy to come against them. See, God will allow certain things to happen in your life. He will do certain things in your life, but he will allow certain things to happen in your life. And it is entirely up to you as to how you deal with it. Maybe you're sick. Is that God's fault? God allowed the illness for a reason. Now, I don't understand it, but nowhere in the scriptures does it say that Robert Sapp has to understand. It just says that that is the case. I don't understand why children get sick, but there is a reason. There is a, the real, the, the underlying the original reason is sin. The original sin in the Garden of Eden. But why does it continue? Because of our disobedience. Because of our unfaith. Our lack of faith. Is one of the reasons. God's telling them. And they're not listening. Now the rest of the punishment you can read for yourself, and I didn't I did not include all of it, but you can continue to read from from Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight, and it goes from verse fifteen to sixty-eight. I stopped at twenty-five. You get the picture though in those ten verses. We don't have to go down this path if we will be obedient. Now, I'm gonna also say that if you are a Christian you've accepted the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior, that it's not always going to be easy sailing. It's not always going to be good times. It's not always going to be the perfect day. Because things happen. So many new Christians get sidetracked, if you will, 
because, oh my gosh, I just accepted the Lord and it's not easy. My world is falling apart. Well, yeah, Satan's out there and he's tempting you to do certain things and he's tormenting you. That's what his job is. If we'd done our job half as good as Satan done his, the world would be in a whole lot better shape. So if you're a new Christian listening to this, it's not always going to be blue skies and sunshine. But even the rain has a reason. Even the snow has a reason. Being an old mountain boy that I am, I was always told the so the snow helped put nitrogen back into the ground for the crops to grow. I do know that a heavy freeze will break up the ground and make it easier and softer for the, the crops to be planted and grown. So there's a reason for the hard times. There's a reason for the cold. There's a reason for the rain. If it wasn't for the rain, we wouldn't have any plants. We wouldn't be here. So there's a reason for all of this. It's not because you've blew it or you've messed up or, oh, it's just too hard. Things happen. But if you're being disobedient to God, that's on you. Verse 6, from the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Isaiah is comparing the children of Israel to someone who has been in a fight. They've gotten beaten up. Been beaten up, they've got bruises all over their body, from the sole of their feet to the top of their head. They are bruised and they are battered. And yet they still climb in the ring. They still go and they still fight more. When are we going to learn? When are we going to stop and learn? If you've been beaten, first of all, you need time to recoup. You need time to heal. You need time to, to the wounds to set. But first, why you been beaten? Why are you looking for the fights? Oftentimes we go looking for the fights and we get beat up and then we want to blame other people. Bad things happen, yes, but we don't have to make sure they happen. Isaiah uses the analogy of an individual who's been in a serious fight, beaten from head to toe with open wounds, without any bandages or ointments for their wounds. The people of Israel are spiritually wounded and are not healing because they continue to get beat up. Their disobedience has allowed them to be spiritually beaten up. And without any repentance, there is no healing. We are also beaten up spiritually if we allow our disobedience to continue without repentance. God sometimes uses the fights that we have, spiritual fights, the spiritual battles, the storms that are raging around us. He sometimes uses them to get our attention. Now over in the book, in the New Testament, Jesus is out on the boat and he is asleep in the boat and there's a storm raging. And one of his disciples comes, or maybe it was more than one, came to him and said, Care us not that we perish? 
And he stood up and he said, Peace be still. I believe it's in the book of Mark. It talks about other boats were on that sea with them. They weren't the only ones in the storm. But when he stilled the storm for his boat, he stilled the storm for others. Maybe you're in the storm for others. Maybe you're in the storm because of other people are in the storm. Maybe you're in the storm to show somebody something. I don't know. It's just something to think about. But when you're disobedient to God, you're in the storm because you're disobeying God. Jonah ran from the Lord, got on a boat, and was going to Tarshish. Storm came, and after a while, they had to throw him overboard. And immediately, the storm stopped. But God wasn't through with Jonah. He provided a great fish, the Old Testament tells us, a great fish to swallow him. And for three days he was in the belly of that great fish. You say, oh wow, that's horrible. If it hadn't been for the great fish, he would have perished in the water. The great fish was his ark, his boat, his rescue, his refuge, his comfort. Sometimes we look at our situation and we think, oh my gosh, this is horrible, this is terrible, this is truly tremendously bad. And once we get away from it a little further, we say, well, you know, it wasn't all that bad. I learned a lot in that lesson. And as long as we can learn something, that's a good thing. What we need to learn from the study of Isaiah, first six, seven, eight, nine verses especially, is disobedience gets you in trouble with God. Repentance gets you out of trouble with God. It's that simple. Ask King David. Every time he was disobedient, he got in trouble. But then he repented, and God blessed him. So are you beat up? Are you spiritually in a battle and getting beat up? It's not your battle to fight. Let Christ fight it for you. All we have to fight is the good fight of faith. All we have to do is turn it over to God and let Him have it. Verse 7. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate. As overthrown by strangers. Isaiah takes his eyes a little bit off of the people and he puts it on the political and the military strength or walk, if you will, of the people as a whole, the government, the country. And he's telling them that they are, because of the people's disobedience, the enemies are surrounding them. Because of the people's disobedience, their cities are falling to the enemies. Because of the people's disobedience, their land is about to be overrun by the, by the enemies, by the bad guys, if you will. The enemies of Israel have burned the cities and overthrown all of the local governments. They are losing their land, the promised land, the land that God promised Abraham, promised Moses, promised all of these. Isaac, Israel, promised them all, this is your land. They're losing it because of their disobedience. 
they're losing the promise of God because they want to go it their own way. Because they decided that they thought that they knew right. Oh, well, I can choose to go this way, or I can choose to do this, or I can go here. We don't have options. You have two paths in front of you at any given time, depending on which path you take. God will tell you which path to take if you ask him and if you listen to him. But you are okay. You're, you're, it's, it's your right, if you will, to take that other path. But where is that leading? Where is that other path going to take you? It's not going to take you to heaven. It's not going to take you to the promised land. It's going to take you to hell. It's two paths. It's up to you. You have the choice to select which path. Ask God which path you should take. And then take it. He's not going to lead you wrong. Well, how do I know it's God? You'll know. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, when God speaks to you, you will know. Without any question. Isaiah turns to look at the political and the military future of Israel. The land is desolate. The cities have been overrun by the enemies. The enemies of Israel have burned the cities and overthrown the local governments. The country is surrounded by enemies. The country is being overthrown by those enemies. And all of this is because of disobedience. And you wonder why things go wrong in your life. Sometimes they go wrong in your life because of the disobedience to God. You don't want God in your life. He doesn't come in. He doesn't force himself. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and he who opens the door, I will come in and sup with him. No, he said, He who opens the door. He doesn't open the door. And if you've ever seen the picture of Jesus standing at the door knocking, look, there is no doorknob on his side of the door. That tells me that he will not, he cannot open the door. Now, I got fussed at one time for saying that. Because, oh, God can do anything. Yes, he can. But he's a gentleman, and he's not going to come where he's not wanted. So there's no doorknob on his side of the door. He will not open that door. You have to open it for him and invite him in. And he said, if you will do that, I will come in and I will sup with you. I will eat with you. I will break bread with you. I will fellowship with you. I will become your friend. How many enemies do you invite to your dinner table? Now, you usually invite your family. You invite your friends. That's what Christ is telling us. He will become our friend. He will become our family if we'll just open the door and invite him in. You don't have to worry about the house being dirty. He'll clean it. You don't have to worry about putting up the stuff that doesn't need to be seen. He'll take care of that. He'll throw all that trash away. All you have to do is open the door. Simple. He's knocking. Are you listening? Are you going to the door? Or are you trying to hide? That's up to you. Verse 8. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard. As a lodge in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Bet you didn't never bet you didn't know that the word cucumber was ever in the scriptures, did you? 
Well, here it is, in the Garden of Cucumbers. Well, what is he talking about? The dollar is on, is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a Garden of Cucumbers. Back in those days, in their gardens, their fields, they built temporary huts. They built small, if you will, lean-tos, what we would call a lean-to. And it was shade for the individuals that was guarding the garden. Because there was a lot of bad guys in the neighborhood, and they would come in and steal the watermelons. I had a great uncle that used to love to come in and steal my dad's watermelons. And it, it got to be kind of a joke between him and my dad over the years, but he was a bad watermelon. Well, I won't say he was a bad watermelon thief. He was a good watermelon thief because he never got caught. We knew it was him that was doing it because he always confessed to us later. As we were eating, as we were eating the, the watermelon often, he would say, Oh, by the way, this came from your garden. I don't know if he ever grew watermelons or not. I don't remember him growing watermelons, but I always remember him having watermelons. So apparently he wasn't just stealing from us. But this, the people of Israel would build these huts in the gardens for the guards that were there to protect the gardens from the thieves. Now they are temporary. They are seasonal. You don't grow gardens in the winter. So therefore, the, guard, the, the hut is empty during the winter. And oftentimes, it was pushed over, removed, and then they would build up a, another, we would call it a shack, a lean-to. They would build these things up just as a temporary measure. And they didn't have a lot of them unless the garden was huge. There would only be one per garden. So they were very isolated. The daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. The daughter of Zion, or Israel as we know it, was compared to a hut that was built in a garden. These huts were temporary and isolated. The reason that these huts existed was to shade the guard of the garden from the sun as they guarded the garden from the thieves. These huts were temporary structures, not well built, and extremely isolated. Israel was compared to these huts because they had become very isolated, and since they were not following God, they were no longer strong. These huts, like Israel, had become easy prey to the enemies. The structures did not afford much protection from the elements or the weather, much less the enemy. These garden huts, these guard shacks, if you will, they weren't... For, there for protection from the people or the, even the wild animals. They was there just to give shade in the summer, hot summer sun. The daughters of Zion, the, the children of Israel, they didn't even have the shade from the sun anymore. But they were getting very, very isolated. They were getting very, very weak. Spiritually, militarily, they were becoming weak. And they were about to be taken over. And we'll stop with verse 9 tonight. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like Gomorrah. There is always a remnant of God's people. Had it not been for God's mercy and grace, the land would have been totally devastated and void of the people. God always has a remnant for his people. Had it not been for these remnants, though, these survivors of God's people, 
the land would not only have been overthrown by the enemies, but it would also have been overrun by nature. Leave a piece of property alone for just a few years and you won't be able to even find the house. Because nature takes over. Sodom and Gomorrah, because of their sin, God destroyed these cities by fire and brimstone. Only Lot and his two unmarried daughters had escaped. First they went to the city of Zeor and then into the mountains surrounding the area. Sodom, and we don't even know where Sodom and Gomorrah is or was. We have a good idea, we think, archaeologically, but it was so destroyed that there's not a lot of evidence showing up. Because there's not a lot of evidence doesn't mean that it didn't exist. It just means it was utterly destroyed. You go out here and you build a big sandcastle on the beach, and then the waves come in and destroy the sandcastle. You can't find any evidence of that sandcastle, but it existed. Even though you can't find the evidence, it existed. Sodom and Gomorrah was the same way. It, they existed as cities, side by side. But because we can't find evidence, people point and say, oh, wow, they, it's fairy tale. it's not real. Just because you don't know the facts, because you don't know the truth, because you don't see the evidence, does not mean it did not happen. I don't know that there was, I could say the same about World War II. My dad was in World War II. But I didn't see the evidence of World War II. I didn't see the bombs. I didn't hear the rifles being fired. So therefore, World War II must not have existed. It must have not have ever happened. Well, that's the most foolish thing anybody's ever talked about. Because we've got documentation that proves that World War II happened. And I am a firm believer that World War II did happen. I'm using it as an example. We've got documentation that World War II happened. We have documentation that Sodom and Gomorrah happened. We have documentation that the children of Israel went into the Promised Land, crossed the Jordan. We have documentation of that. Oh, well, it's documented in one book called the Bible. Well, that one book's all I need. It's all I care to have. But yet we believe what's put in a world book. We believe what's put in an encyclopedia. We believe what we read on the internet. We believe what we see with our own eyes and we believe what we read in the newspaper. Did you see that wreck that the newspaper's talking about? Maybe the newspaper's wrong. Maybe the internet's wrong. Maybe that volcano didn't explode. Maybe that tsunami didn't happen. Oh, well, we've got evidence of this because it's written down. The evidence for me is written down. I know these things happened. In the book of, of Rome, in Romans 9 and 29, Paul even quotes this scripture from Isaiah 1 and 9. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we have been as Sodom, been made like unto Gomorrah. Unless God leaves a remnant of people, it will be desolate, it will be useless, it will be void. And nature will overrun it. God always has a remnant of people. Are you the remnant? Are you a part of the remnant? 
My mother-in-law could take a remnant of cloth and make a beautiful outfit out of it. Just a remnant. Some people would say it and see it as a rag. Some people would see it as just a piece of cloth. She could see it and see children's clothing or something else. Depends on who's sewing it. It depends on who's creating it. Depends on the master. The remnant can do a lot. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this night. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you'll continue to bless, that you'll continue to lift us up, and that you'll continue to enlighten our eyes of understanding, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you'll move and that you'll touch and that you'll stretch forth your hand here this day. Lord, that you'll open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to receive, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. Again, we will not have Monday night Bible study next week. I will see you in two weeks. If you have a prayer request, please hit me up on Trinity Word Ministry. Love to hear from you. If you've got a question, same thing. We'd love to hear from you. Until we talk again, have a blessed day.